Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here today with Tom Quinn, who's the Head of Policy and Research at Beyond Zero Emissions, which is a climate solutions focused think tank. Welcome, Tom. It's lovely to have you here today. It's great to be here, Liana. So, Tom, I'm going to start with a question we ask everybody. If you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? Oh, that's a good one. Look, for me personally, I, I want Australia to be the industrial powerhouse of the world where we are exporting clean industrial products and creating lots of strong jobs here in, in the country. And we're really looked at the world as this is how you grow and prosper in a, a low carbon future. That it's nothing to be scared of, that it's actually enormous opportunities, that it's enriched the nation and created lots of long-term stable jobs for the country. That, that's my vision for where we want to get to. And Look, I think we've got all the right ingredients. Obviously, sometimes it's hard to see the future. The crystal ball is always a bit foggy, but we've got this amazing abundance of resources, whether it's our incredibly rich renewable assets. We've got some of the best solar, wind and others in the world. We've also got abundant natural resources. But most importantly, we've got awesome people. Like we've got brilliant, creative people from all walks of life who can do amazing things if we give them the opportunity. And I think those three ingredients together really give Australia everything that we need to be a great nation in the future. And that's what I'm excited about in 20 years time. Great. Thank you. So I said you're the head of policy and research at Beyond Zero Emissions. You're fairly new in that role. I, and we'll, we'll talk about what you're doing there, but I would just love to know a little bit more about you, your background, some of the other things you've been involved in as well. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. So I am fairly new to the role. I've, only, I've been here less than two months and I guess I'm a long-term believer in Beyond Zero Emissions and its work. As you said at the start, we are solutions focused and I think that's what we need. We often focus on the negatives, but I actually think the economic upside of the low carbon uh, transition is probably the most exciting part. And to be honest, it's pretty much been the thread running through my life. If you go right back, like I grew up on a farm down in South Gippsland, a beef farm, and it was probably there that the penny first started to drop for me. My dad loves growing trees and stuff, so we would plant out all the the fence lines and plantations and yeah you know, go back at school I, I remember kids being like oh, like why are you planting trees like, that's spots where good grass would grow but the interesting thing was we had two farms so we had you know our home block which is where most of the tree planting had, had gone on because we've been there the longest and we had a new block that was you know beautiful flat country incredibly rich soil and stuff but the yields for our cattle on the home block were actually much higher than our other block on the basis had much better, you know, soil and temperate and all the rest. And it's because the trees provided shelter for the animals. So when those cold winter winds were blasting through, they could have shelter to get out of it. So they weren't losing as much condition. And the same in the summertime, they weren't out there in the baking heat, just getting absolutely cooked. They can go in the shade. So it was probably at that point I went, oh, this is really interesting. Often we see environmental outcomes and economic outcomes put in contest with each other. But I think that's a false dichotomy. I actually think we can get better economic outcomes and better sustainability or environmental outcomes by lining these two up. 
It's what we found on the farm. And it's, to be honest, it's what I've found in every sector I've worked in since. I think that's fascinating and not something we often understand. And I guess there's much more of that awareness in the agricultural community generally. Farmers have been absolutely at the leading edge of some of this work around emissions reduction and land preservation and protection because they're so close to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we often have a very narrow stereotype of what the farming community is, but if we give farmers a chance, one, they're, they're actually out there in the environment every single day. They can feel the land, they can feel the climate. They know how the conditions are changing and, and how that impacts productivity. We've also got a lot of the solutions there as well. I think it's just getting beyond yeah, these false dichotomies and going, what's the future that we actually want? And giving the support structures in place to get there. It's very similar to another sector. The first industry I worked in after I finished my studies was in the commercial building industry. I worked for a number of years with the Green Building Council of Australia, which essentially it certifies green at that time, just commercial buildings, but now pretty much any building type in Australia can get certified as a green star one, which basically just says this building is pretty good environmentally, not just from an emissions perspective, but also a health perspective and a number of other um, impacts on, on the environment. And yeah, I guess coming from that farming background, I was like, yeah, okay, can you make it work in this space too? And I remember the first, we did some productivity studies on commercial buildings that were your standard concrete commercial building, the grey office cubicles versus one of the new green star ones. And the first one that came back, I was like, oh, this can't be right. It was showing that productivity levels were 10% higher in the Green Star Rated building. Now, 10% productivity improvement is huge. Most companies based in those CBD office buildings, that their primary cost base is their employees. If you can get a 10% productivity yield, that makes a phenomenal difference to your margins. And, and you can definitely justify paying a higher rent to be in one of those buildings. Like, ah, oh, this, it, it must be an outlier. That's a huge chunk. But yeah, lo and behold, we looked at building after building. Some of them were high up to the 11 or 12%. Some of them were a bit lower down to 8%, but pretty much all of them were sitting at about that 10, 10% productivity boost. And it simply came back to these buildings were better for people. The products in them were off-gassing less chemicals. They were designed so they could have more natural light coming in. And what it meant is that the workers inside were healthier. They weren't getting sick as often. And because they they weren't sick as often, they didn't have to take as much sick leave, they weren't infecting their colleagues, and productivity was much higher. Plus, they were happier, so it was probably more, more valuable productivity. We, we often see environment and economics put in contest with each other, but it, it's false. We, we can get much better outcomes by both if we line them up. I think that's really interesting. In my previous role in education, one of the things that I learned was that environments where kids can see trees they tend to have better learning outcomes. If they've got access to fresh air, the learning outcomes are better. And I suppose it makes sense. We are animals, really. So we, we do better when we're a little bit more connected to that natural environment. But 10% is a very big number. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it makes sense. Like, I've got two little kids, um, like a three and a five-year-old, and I know it's the same here. Yeah, particularly with the, the lockdown days that we've had. If you're all cooped up inside, oh, you just start going bonkers. But as soon as you can get them outside, everything just settles. Everyone's much happier. And you're like, okay, we're sane. I'm not going to tear my hair out. <laughs> yeah, I, 
And I think the interesting thing too with buildings is what you're talking about is it is a kind of evolution, isn't it? We're getting more comfortable in those buildings. It's not that we're losing the things that buildings give us in terms of shelter and protection, but it's an evolution. It's a more sophisticated kind of building that allows us to have that shelter and protection, but also get some more of the benefits of being outside. That's right. And I think the other part too is if we look at just regular houses in Australia, we've got enormous opportunity to make them more comfortable, which will also make them more environmentally efficient. And there's a really good health reason for it too. Globally, Australia's housing stock is very poor quality. And I think it's largely because in most places in Australia, it doesn't get cold enough to snow and, and really damage you if you don't have a good quality building. So we've had pretty much, should be right, mate, bare minimum. But the consequences of that are really profound. Like we actually have more people die of cold or cold-related illnesses in Australia than occur in Sweden. Now on the surface, that's just crazy. But it all comes back down to the quality of these buildings where in Sweden, you've got very efficiently designed buildings that are properly air sealed. So you don't have that cold air coming in and out. They stay warm or they stay a stable temperature. In Australia, like our houses are pretty leaky. Like most of our old buildings, they still don't have insulation. Um, they're not really air sealed. Predominantly single glazed or super thin old glazing as a lot of you will probably find if, if you're in a you know, house built from the 50s or from that kind of era. And the direct impact for, like I've been converting our home, which is an old 50s brick veneer building. But the thing that's really struck me is like I've been doing these things from like a, I'm a bit of a wonk. I'm, I'm very curious in applying these new technologies. But the thing that's really struck me is just how much more comfortable the home is. We wake up in the morning now and our house doesn't have that icy tinge in it. You go, oh, this is actually, it's comfortable. And so you feel happier in your home. And you know, some of the research we've been doing through the Million Jobs Plan has just shown just the enormous economic opportunity that if we if we get serious about improving the quality and comfort of our housing stock, we can create over 900,000 jobs doing that, that work, which will make all of Australians better off. Yes, it's clearly a passion area and I think there's just enormous opportunity. And if we can just start looking at the upside of it and stop, I guess, looking at things through the negative lens, it, it just creates a lot more opportunities and entrepreneurialism locally. Interesting. So you grew up on a farm, you spent time in commercial buildings and then what? So after that, like I, I love buildings, but it was like the big challenge, and this is going back over a decade, the big challenge at that time was how do we get the uptake of renewables fast enough to rapidly decarbonise our grid? Because we're looking at the carbon side of things, like our electricity sector is a huge part of the challenge solution. And at the time, both in the commercial building sector, as well as more broadly, you had a lot of companies that were starting to say, look, I really want to be able to source our energy directly from renewable sources. But it was a bit hard and they wanted to be able to say, our company uh, essentially bought that wind farm or that's our one. At the time, the energy market wasn't structured in a way that you could do that. And I was working with the city of Melbourne at the time, and we did this really exciting project that took many years, but called the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. And what it did is it basically clustered together a bunch of the big energy users. So like the city of Melbourne, a few of the other ones, some of the corporate players like Bank Australia, went out to the market and said, collectively, we use this much energy each year. Can we essentially use this to buy or underpin the construction of a new, new wind farm? And 
this is a very simplified story. There was a lot of challenge in the works, but that led to the development of the Crowlands wind farm in Victoria, which is a yeah, reasonably sized one. But most importantly, it opened up a pathway for basically any large energy user from either the corporate or public sector to enact, like, and it's a bit wonky, but it, it's called a PPA, which is a power purchase agreement. And it's basically just a contract that says, we will buy X amount of power from this one. And that allows that wind farm developer or solar farm developer, whoever they are, to go to the bank and say, we would like to build this thing. We've got this guaranteed demand and that allows them to get the finance to get the thing built. It was very exciting because it was very innovative. It created a whole new pathway to get new renewable energy projects um, built and really unlocked that latent demand across the corporate and public sector for renewable energy projects that wasn't being met because of some pretty rigid market structures and a concentration of power with a few majors that I, I guess want to maintain their old business models. And that was holding back the, the growth of renewables in Australia. So that's really fascinating. How many more examples have there been like that since that first one? Just at the start of June was um, the announcement of the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project Mark II, which is an even bigger purchase. And it's basically pretty much every other council or local government area in Victoria that wasn't involved in part of that has basically clustered together all their demand to build, I think, something that's twice as big as the Crowlands Wind Farm. We've also seen a lot of the corporate sector take the lead. University of Melbourne has done their own. Carlton United Breweries has done their own. There's many out there now. It's basically a very viable, stable pathway that a lot of companies and aggregations of consumers are now following. It's really exciting. It's actually, it's changed the whole dynamics of the energy market in Australia. So one of the things we're trying to do in this season of the podcast is really understand what is and what isn't happening in Australia in terms of steps to reduce emissions. So you talked about some corporate examples. I know that there've been some big public announcements recently by big Australian companies who are looking to reduce their emissions. Is there a clear path for them? So it's one thing to announce you're going to, you want to get there in 2050, which is quite a long way off. It's quite another thing to have a very clear and coherent plan as to how you're going to get there. How much have you been thinking about that as an organisation? Oh, look, that's probably a big focus beyond zero emissions at the moment. So look, I guess the main piece of work which I've been doing with our team at the moment is looking at what we term renewable energy industrial precincts. So this is basically how do we essentially decarbonize our big industrial processes like steel manufacturing or aluminium production, as well as new sectors, say battery production, if we can build that local industry here. Now, these sectors are challenging because they use very large amounts of energy. And some of them, if it's at the aluminium sector, they're basically running 24-7 because if they stop, the, the big pots that carry the molten aluminium, if they get too cool, and too cool for aluminium, I think is about 600 degrees. If they drop the temperature as low as 600 degrees, those pots will freeze. And that's a very expensive issue for them. If you're replacing a pot line, you're looking at least $30 million. It's not the type of mistake you want to have. But on the other side of the equation, there's enormous opportunity here because the world is looking for these products that are essentially zero carbon products. So there's increasing appetite to find pathways that will allow us to decarbonize these. I think for Australia, it's very exciting because we mine and export a lot of the raw materials. 
what it means is that if we can actually start to do more of the refining and processing onshore, it also means we can bring the jobs back onshore. And if they're good quality, well-paid, secure jobs, the work we're doing is basically how do you get the parts working so you can have the volume of renewable energy to supply these renewable energy industrial precincts? How do you firm that renewable energy so that it's reliable all the time? And, and it, it basically means batteries. Now, batteries could be ones like the Tesla batteries we hear a lot about. They could also be things like hydro. So existing hydro facilities or the expansions of existing, like the Snowy 2.0 project, or it could be smaller ones, which is basically what we call pumped hydro, where you have, in very simple terms, two dams, one which is much higher than the other, when you want to produce the energy, you release the energy from the top down and it runs down through a big pipe, hits a turbine, spins it around, and, and that creates the electricity. On the other hand, when you want to charge it up, you basically do the reverse and you just pump the water from the bottom down up to the top and that becomes your battery. There's a lot of opportunity for that in Australia. So we're, we're working with a lot of very large corporations on this to go, how do we make this work? And I guess the great news is it's totally doable. Like most of the tech is there. We've just got some very big capital and yeah, some other challenges that, that we're working through. But the good news is we're seeing a lot of positive development. New South Wales has recently announced its Clean Manufacturing Precinct Initiative in the Hunter, which is where we've been saying is a great spot to, to build a renewable energy industrial precinct. So, you know, the tide shifting. We're seeing the same up in Gladstone, where we've been doing a lot of other very deep work on the economics there, where the Queensland government has recently come out and secured a very large parcel of land to be a very high volume hydrogen facility. And that'll be exciting because you can start to use that to both firm the power as well as use it in, say, future steel production or aluminium production. So there's a lot of great chances to create tens and tens of thousands of jobs in these value-added industrial processes. I think there's enormous upside here for Australia. We've just got to look at the opportunity side rather than the cost side. So you went a little bit quiet when you talked about the challenges. Obviously, <laughs> you're emphasising the opportunity, which I think is important. I think there has been a lot of anxiety about the transition rather than a focus on the opportunity. But I am interested to understand a little bit more about the nature of those challenges. Are they about lack of money or political will or you know technological complexity? What's What are the things that we need to work through? The one that's mostly in my mind at the moment, it's probably a bit similar to that same challenge we were dealing with at the city of Melbourne, which is how do you connect the demand with the supply? And in, in that instance, it, it was having a power purchase agreement. If we're looking at, say, hydrogen development, which is going to be very important for a lot of these industries in Australia, we've got a similar challenge, but it's a real chicken the egg where we have to build the demand and supply concurrently because if you're building a hydrogen facility, particularly at this point, they're fairly early in the development profile. The world doesn't have major hydrogen facilities. It will in the future, but at the moment, we're at the very start of the curve. And if you're going to get funding for a large hydrogen facility or to build one, the first thing they're going to want to know is, do you have demand? Do you have an offtake agreement? Who's going to buy your hydrogen? A really good question. You absolutely need someone to buy the hydrogen. But to have some buying the hydrogen, we need to make sure we've either reconfigured existing steel mills so they can basically incorporate hydrogen into it or other industrial processes so that they're hydrogen ready. And they've got the same dilemma where like, if they're saying, we want to refurbish our steel mill, build a whole new steel mill that's going to be, be fired with hydrogen, the bank's going to say, okay, that's great. 
what's your hydrogen supply source going to be? And because we don't have the big hydrogen supply sources yet, that becomes challenging. So like the ingredients are there, but it's how do you line these pieces up in a way that allows both sides of the equation to progress together and, and hedge that risk of you know, ha having great supply but no one to buy it or building a facility that's hungry for a product that's not in production yet. You also talked about, you used the phrase, we're at the beginning of the curve and that curve is the, is really the cost and production curve, right? So how much we're producing and how much it costs to produce. And what we've seen over time with almost every technology that's ever been introduced right back to the, the car is that when you're building a few, these are expensive. And then the more you build, the cheaper each individual unit gets to build. And what we've seen in wind and solar is that those cost curves have come down much more rapidly than any kind of analysts anticipated over the last couple of years. But it requires investment at the front end to do that. Have I described that accurately for your understanding? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And um, look, I think a really good example of that is solar. And Australia has been at the absolute forefront and continues to be in terms of solar design and getting those costs down. We don't do the production side, like most of that comes um, out of China, but from a the R&D side, Australia is leaps and bounds ahead of pretty much everywhere else. The University of New South Wales, basically the world's best practice for solar design. And I think it's a really illustrative example there. If we go back to the 50s, which is when solar modules first started to be created at a very small scale, to produce a watt of solar at that point, I think it cost around 1800 $1,900 per watt. Now, in contrast today, a watt is about a dollar. It is a phenomenal change, but we needed that early investment to get us down that cost curve. And today we continue seeing them falling at a ridiculous rate. We're going to see the same in hydrogen. And I guess the opportunity for Australia is if we can move early, we can seize the opportunities. We can build this industry domestically and then we can export our hydrogen to the world. It's an enormous opportunity, but we've got to make those first investments. We've got to attract that industry. And I think we're seeing the right bits starting to move into place, but like we're in a global race, as with everything, the faster we can run, the, the better our odds are of seizing a bigger market share in the future. Uh, one person made the observation that one of the assets that we have, you talked about our people, but one of the assets that we have at the moment is that it's both a challenge when it comes to managing a transition, but it's it's also in our favour, is that we are a resources intensive economy. And yes, those resources at the moment are in fossil fuels, but the kinds of skills that it takes to be good at extraction, because it's also gotten cheaper to extract and make power from coal because we've gotten more sophisticated. So there's been a cost curve for those products as well, that we have a lot of engineering capacity and technological sophistication through our mining sector and our resources sector, they're the same sorts of skills, I would imagine. Is that true? Are they transferable? Oh, absolutely. You're exactly right. And I guess that's one of the things I've been coming back to is this isn't actually building something new for us. We're actually really good at building very large scale industrial facilities, whether it's mines for either coal or iron ore or increasingly um, critical minerals or building massive gas storage facilities. We're actually building what we know like we're really good at doing this stuff. The new bit is the product that's inside it and the fact that we're eliminating emissions. So 
It, it's really building on the base of what we're already good at, capitalising on that, as well as rapidly decarbonising our economy and the world's. And yet I think, and I've been thinking recently actually about the transition to cars because there was a lot of anxiety and fear when people moved from horses to cars were a big kind of unknown and a lot of a sense that that transition wouldn't happen. And even some of the early cars had horses' heads on the front of them. Um, (laughs) I've seen these photos. And it, it reminds me, I think generally as humans, we often react to the potential of big change with fear because it's fear of the unknown. We can think of all the risks, all the things that might go wrong. Are you finding that as you talk to people about possibilities and jobs, people are thinking, yes, what are we losing? We're losing are we losing our competitiveness? Are we moving too soon? What about the jobs that are in coal at the moment? Is that a discussion that you're having with a lot of people, a sense of fear and concern? I've got to be honest, I I thought that would be the conversations that we'd be having, but we've been doing a lot of work on the ground, particularly in the Hunter and in Gladstone. And I guess the thing that has struck me is just the sheer amount of enthusiasm and excitement from the community and the local business sector to basically diversify the economy. I think there's a a wide acknowledgement that any economy is vulnerable if you've basically got all your eggs in one basket. And that's doubly if that basket that you've got your eggs in is a fossil fuel basket. And, And that's absolutely the case in the Hunter. They're very aware that far too many eggs at the moment are in the coal basket. So you've got to diversify that economy. So actually, yeah, I've been blown away just by the excitement and the sheer enthusiasm about building these new industries to diversify the economy, to bring in new jobs. I don't know, I've probably got my ear tuned to it a little bit more now that I've got kids. I think previously, I didn't notice as much, but this desire for having good jobs for their kids, like clean jobs that are secure and stable, that there's a real demand for that and like for me personally that's also what I want for my kids I want to create opportunities for them to work in good stable jobs that are also good for Australia and good for the planet I don't, I don't think it's too much to, to ask and I think that's increasingly what the community wants as soon as you get away from the community level things start to get a bit abstract and that's probably where the fear is surprisingly you'd think that there'd be more fear on the ground but I think it's actually more at that abstract level and I guess the way I've been viewing it I think Australia right now is essentially having our own Kodak moment. I'm sure many of you had Kodak cameras or film back in the day, but you might not know that Kodak developed the first digital camera. But they didn't sell it because they went, oh, we've, we've got this great film business. It's amazing. Like, why would we go into digital when we've got this great film business? And long story short, the absolute bottom fell out of film. It collapsed. Competitors developed digital cameras. New entrants came in and absolutely seized the market. And Kodak eventually filed for bankruptcy because they didn't shift with the times. They didn't shift their economic base to where the future was. I think Australia is facing our own Kodak moment now where we have, we've got all the technology, we've got all the opportunity to shift into this low emissions. And it's an enormous opportunity if we seize it. But if we decide to cling to our old business model, then we're going to be very exposed and other companies or other countries are going to come in and seize that future opportunity the bottom's going to fall out of our old business model and yeah, we'll, we'll be in a world of pain. I think it's a very interesting analogy. And the challenge of course is I assume at Kodak, there were lots of feisty conversations and probably not everybody was on the same page about how best to respond. I know it's hard enough in any big organization 
to get alignment and we're a country, right? I think that's the other thing that's different is, is it's, and of course the truth is Australia has made many economic transitions. We have, at least outside of COVID, we have a massive services export with our education industry, global services export that contributes huge amounts of money to the economy. Well, it's very different to 100 years ago. So it's not like Australia hasn't transitioned before, but this is a transition that maybe it's a bit different because we really have to plan and manage it in an active way. So yes, opportunity, but also challenge in terms of the coordination that's required to get there. And I think the challenge is that too, a lot of our discussion has become tied up in emotion and very politicised when I think we've just got to take a big breath and go from a very rational perspective in our common sense. Does it make more sense to diversify our economy and bring in new jobs? Or does it make sense for us not to diversify and just hope? To be honest, it's a no-brainer. We absolutely need to diversify, but because it often gets tied up in emotion and politics, we often you know, can't see the wood for the trees and I, I guess lose sight of the enormous opportunity that we've got here. Yes, and I think the assumption for many Australians that I've talked to is that the, the experience we're having in Australia is consistent with countries in other parts of the world, when in fact... Climate change is not politicised uh, in all other parts of the world in, in the same way. I've been speaking to a lot of people in the UK where you've got a conservative government that's taking a lot of action on climate change and where you have both sides of government. They might, they, it, it's probably a little bit more like education is in Australia. Education is an issue where both sides of government agree it needs to happen. They might have minor differences about exactly how we need to get there, but there's no one who's saying we shouldn't have a really strong public education system. And climate change as is an issue is like that in many other countries. It's just not at the moment in Australia. There have been times in the past when it has been an issue where both sides of government have said we absolutely need to move and fast. So, yes, I, I think that's an interesting point. And I think another good example of that is Germany, where, you know, for over 10 years now, Angela Merkel has led a conservative government in Germany. Now, Germany is an industrial manufacturing nation that's been powered by brown coal for most of its history. It's a very similar, in some ways, to the Latrobe Valley here in Australia, that, that brown coal electricity base. But it's not politicised there. They've recognised the need and they're rapidly shifting away and, and diversifying their economy and, you know, essentially positioning themselves to prosper and attract those jobs of the future. And, and they're probably shaking their heads and asking, oh, look, there's, there's a major competitor. Luckily, they're, they're a bit lost in the weeds at the moment. But I, I think we can get out of the weeds quickly and we can still run fast. We can bring these jobs in and build on what we already are really great at doing and, yes, yeah, seize that economic share of the future. Yeah, yeah. Now, we have talked a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing, but are there other things that you're working on at Beyond Zero Emissions at the moment that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I touched a bit on our renewable energy industrial precincts. This is really looking at how do we build these industrial precincts that are powered by 100% renewable energy and decarbonise. Like one of the really exciting bits of work we've got going on at the moment, or maybe exciting if you're a bit of a technical wonk, but we've been doing some economic analysis of the ones we're proposing in Gladstone and the Hunter. And look, I have been blown away by how good the numbers are coming back. I'll just give you a little sneak peek because it hasn't been released yet, but yeah, basically showing in, in the Hunter, we can be producing tens of thousands of extra jobs in the region, attracting billions and billions of dollars per year in extra revenue. The same to in Gladstone. Gladstone's a much smaller base. It's only a city of 30,000, but similarly, like you can create over 10,000 jobs there and attract a couple of billion extra revenue per year. It's 
it's been really validating on the economic potential. And to be honest, it's a conservative estimate. Like we've taken the most conservative figures. So I actually think the upside is much greater. The other major bit of work, well, we've got two other major bits of work too that we're looking at. One is what the international demand profile is looking like for Australian exports in the future. Like at the moment, roughly a third of our exports are fossil fuel, whether it's gas or coal and a little bit of oil. Basically, the, the nations that we're exporting those to, like China, South Korea, Japan, even Europe, we export a reasonable amount of coal to, they've all committed to net zero emissions. So the result is that over the next couple of decades, we're going to see the markets for those products evaporate. Now, that's a challenge, but luckily we've got this enormous opportunity to replace that export base with value-added clean materials such as steel. At the moment, we, we export a lot of iron ore. We're looking at how you can build big renewable energy industrial precincts, similar to what Fortescue is proposing, but probably more distributed across the country to be value-adding that iron ore, basically using our renewable resources to convert that into much higher value steel, potentially doing the same uh, with other critical minerals like lithium and nickel, certainly looking at what we can do in the aluminium space so we can actually value add our exports and more than fill that hole that's going to be left once those fossil fuel exports evaporate. So I'm really excited about that. And we're also doing a bit in the heavy transport space, but I won't go into that too much yet. We're still in the, the build up stage there. And when you talk about those precincts and the job creation, Who's paying for the jobs? Who's paying people to do those jobs? How do you get that started? There's two parts. One, one is you keep existing industries because like for something like our aluminium smelters are quite old. We, we still export a lot rel like relative to our size, but we could export a lot more. So if we can actually build the business model where these are powered by renewables at an affordable, secure energy supply, then we can keep those jobs and also grow them because we know that companies globally are increasing demanding or looking to demand zero carbon products. Volvo has just announced they're going to be procuring low emission steel for their vehicle production going forward. So by 2025, they're hoping to be basically shifting their entire steel base to low emission steel. It's the first cab off the rank, so to speak, in the car sector, but I expect all the other car makers to quickly follow suit. We're going to see similar things happening globally with enormous demand and very ambitious climate commitments starting to look through their supply chain and go, okay, where are our emissions and, and what are the alternatives so we can get them down? Now, that's essentially building the demand side. The challenge is how do we make sure we're building the supply side and we can expand our existing facilities as well as attract the new ones with the right incentives and bring the ambitious industrial processing businesses to our shores to set up shop and, and employ locals. Does that require federal government action or are those things that state governments are doing or can do or local government? Look, what I would love to see is to have a federal renewable energy industrial precinct policy so we can have that consistency um, of vision and support and give that confidence to businesses that if they come here to set up shop, the policy frameworks are going to be there to support them and not undermine them. That's where I think we need to get to. There is a lot that state governments are doing. I gave some examples earlier about what New South Wales and um, the Queensland governments are doing to basically pave the way for these clean industrial processing facilities. We're seeing a lot of movement in that space. I think we're seeing similar stuff. I know over in WA, Treasury over there is looking at what 
what policies or changes they need to make to build that onshore processing capacity to value add iron ore and other minerals. So there, there is state government movement, which is excellent, but yeah, look, the ideal is that you have a federal government policy to build and support renewable energy industrial precincts across Australia to bring those tens, if not more, it's going to be hundreds of thousands if we do it nationally, of jobs back on shore to do these value-added industries. It would just give that confidence for investors and companies to come set up shop here. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you've already talked about a lot of ideas that Beyond Zero Emissions is putting out there and putting forward to Australia. If you had one big idea that you'd suggest all Australians could get behind and should be advocating for, is there one big idea that you'd be backing? Oh, look, it's definitely this renewable energy industrial precincts just because it, it plays to our strengths to, to basically say we, we can build these industrial precincts in a lot of our key industrial heartlands. We've identified 14 at a minimum, that make a lot of sense. So this includes obviously Hunter and Gladstone, which I've mentioned, but also places like Bell Bay in Tasmania, the Latrobe Valley in Portland and Victoria, Whaler in South Australia, Port Hedland in WA. There's a lot of opportunities across Australia to do these high value, clean industrial processes. And I think the opportunity there is that we can really connect up our abundant renewable resources, which are very cheap, with our ores and basically export that to the world. So we're not just reducing our own emissions, we're also reducing the globe's emissions because the iron ore that we export to China, it is largely getting turned into steel in a coal-fired blast furnace over there. So it's creating immense emissions over there. If we can do it onshore, we reduce not just our own emissions and build a, make us a, a renewable energy superpower, but we're also reducing the globe. So we'll be punching above our weight. And I think that's something Australia has historically been very good at. We're a, a small, ambitious nation that's often led the world. We've lost sight of that, I think, lately. But we can do that again in this. And I, my firm belief is if everyone get behind saying we want these renewable energy industrial precincts, they'll bring in investment, they'll bring jobs to the regions. I think it's something that everyone can get behind and we, we can get beyond the, the emotion and politics and just go, how do we create good jobs for Australians and, and just get on with it? Great. Okay, so putting big renewable sources next to big industrial high emissions processes and using right. that to reduce emissions for those products and build up our export capacity for those products as well. Yep. Yep, that's right, creating yep, low emissions steel, low emissions aluminium, low emissions lithium, you name it. Like we, we can do it and create. If you get that base, then you can build all those other industries on. Like if you've got a really good local lithium processing um capacity then the thing you can build on top of that is battery processing so we can start to get into more advanced manufacturing as well yeah and if people want to learn a little bit more about that they're interested in understanding kind of what's this all about or maybe what they could do to help drive that that kind of path forward where can they find you and bze and those ideas yeah the first thing to do is google beyond zero emissions we have a wealth of information on our website and we're also pretty unique amongst think tanks. Like we, we are powered by volunteers. We basically attract some of the most passionate, best and brightest in their fields to come and help us nut through these very tricky problems. So if you're interested in contributing your expertise, please visit our website, see what we're up to. And if you'd like to yeah, support us, whether as a volunteer or getting behind our work more broadly, hit us up. There's a, a multitude of ways to get involved. 
We also have a lot of people on the ground in different communities saying to their, to their own members at the state and federal level and their local level, we want to build these industries of the future. What are you doing to support it? We can see this big picture here. How do we get our slice of the pie as well? So, yeah. First thing though, Google Beyond Zero Emissions, check out what we're up to. And yeah, if you want to dive deeper, drop us a line and we're more than happy to help. Great. Thank you. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, absolute pleasure. Thank you.